Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. I'm sure it hasn't escaped anyone's attention that house prices have been rising at a stratospheric pace across much of the Western world. This week we ask, what could cause house prices to crash? I want to know what combination of economics, policy and unexpected events could cause prices to fall and how likely it is to happen. And later we answer the dumb question of the week. Why does money printing not inevitably lead to high inflation? Okay, let's get into it. So one of the things that's characterised this post-pandemic recovery is an incredible increase in house prices. Now, we've seen this in the UK, where prices are up nearly 10% year on year. We've seen a similar story in the US and even bigger growth in places like Canada. What do you make of the housing market at the moment, Roman? It's interesting that it's risen so much relative to income because ultimately what drives house prices is how much income increases. And that's simply because usually you buy a house with a mortgage, it's a multiple of your income, and if that income's increasing, then you can borrow more and you know the house prices will go up in line. Just in the same way that if earnings increase for a company, the price of the stock market rises. So that's the kind of fundamental valuation measure, if you like, for houses. And we have seen wages increasing. Not a lot. There's been an acceleration since the pandemic. And not in real terms. And in real terms in the UK, as you say, over a decade, we've seen almost no growth. So, you know, I think at the moment, with inflation as high as it is, we're actually seeing the standard of living and also real wages falling quite sharply. So you wouldn't expect house prices to do so well in an environment like that. So what has caused it? It's interesting. I mean, if you look at the nationwide house price survey in the UK, and this is only for the UK, of course, but I think the reasons in the US are quite similar. Part of it has been that during lockdown, many people didn't go out and spend money on things like restaurants or holidays. And so that money was saved. So you could use that saving for a house deposit. And of course, that increases because it's a leveraged purchase. You can actually afford to buy a more expensive house, which is a multiple of that deposit. So certainly for the Nationwide House Price Survey, they're showing that on average, you've had a deposit which has increased by about £6,000 per household. So that means that, you know, you can have a big bump in the actual house price that you can buy. But that would suggest it's a one-off if it's that um, process of saving extra money in lockdown. Yes, it is. And I think eventually we're going to exhaust that saving. I think we're pretty much there already. Certainly the savings rate has come down. So the rate of growth of the savings has effectively stopped. So now we're just spending that money that we saved during the pandemic. And so I think you're right, that will be a temporary bump. And of course, we've got things like low interest rates we've had for such a long time. That explains why we had such house price growth that lasted for a long period of time. Yeah, because it's accelerated in the pandemic, but it's been going on for a very long time, hasn't it? And we've basically seen interest rates falling for the best part of 30 years. And I think that's the primary driver here, isn't it? Is that when people think about the house they can afford, they're not really looking at the overall price of the house. They're looking at what's my monthly mortgage payment going to be. And with low interest rates, you can afford more. That's also what the banks look at. It's how much they can afford in terms of disposable income, because ultimately that determines whether they can service the debt. That's the important thing. And they've never got that wrong before, have they? (laughs) (laughs) But if you look at the historic debt levels, actually, at the moment, households aren't that levered in the United States or in the UK. Where we have seen a big pickup in credit growth in the UK, and the Bank of England publishes this data, is in credit cards. Lots of people are spending more on their credit cards and the balances have risen a lot. But in terms of mortgage debt, 
that has increased. The number of mortgages issued has increased, but it's still affordable. So I think they've kind of <laughs> clued up to the fact that, you know, that's not a good idea to let the system overheat and then have a crisis. No, we don't really want boom and bust when it comes to people's houses. Because ultimately, you know, if people default on their mortgages, they're out on the street. But I think there are certain policies in place which have distorted the market, particularly things like in the UK, we've got something called help to buy, where the government chips in for the loan so that you can buy something which you can't afford. Yeah, help, help to boost house builders' profits is what I call that, the scheme. <laughs> <laughs> well, the minute the scheme was announced, that was almost the kind of starting bell for a massive rally in UK house builders. Yeah. So it's absolutely no surprise, right? Interestingly, we have seen the share prices of house builders in the UK fall by sort of like 20% this year, I think. So, you know, that's maybe the sort of canary in the coal mine that prices are looking a bit speculative. Yeah, that was the boom and bust that we can actually monitor in real time using those share prices, as you say. But I think the key thing is going to be, in terms of sustainability of this rally in house prices, is, you know, the help to buy is going to expire in March 2023. Will the government keep it in place? Will they not? And then ultimately, we're going to see inflation at high levels. And that's effectively taking money out of people's pockets. So if that's sustained, then I think we're going to see a problem for the housing market. But it is interesting, these schemes which boost demand. All the governments, they look at it and think, oh my God, young people and people generally are struggling to afford houses. Let's just throw money at the problem, which makes it worse, really. You should be boosting supply if you want to control house prices, not boosting demand. Or let's say it, Michael, house prices could fall. Never, never. (laughs) (laughs) That could be the solution. I mean, really, that's what should happen. When you see the house price to earnings ratio in the UK higher than it was in 2007, just before that sell-off, just before that crash in house prices, it wasn't a huge crash. That was about 15% in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah, 15, 20%, something like that depending on the region. A bit more in the US. Yeah, a lot more in the US in some places. But at the moment, it's well above. So the average house in the UK is seven times the earnings of the household. Yeah, and in England, it's over nine times. So, you know, we can see the effects of a kind of gradual equalisation of house prices by region. But it's still the case that the UK is effectively two countries. You've got Londonshire and you've got the rest of the UK. Because if you look at the house prices in London versus everywhere else, it's just disproportionately higher. I mean, there are lots of reasons why that could be the case. It could be, you know, dirty money being laundered. Let's call it foreign direct investment. Foreign direct investment, sorry. Or it could be, you know, simply the fact that there's so much of the financial sector in London. And of course, they're paid disproportionately more than other sectors. Well, it's one of the top, I don't know, three or five cities in the world, isn't it? So it's going to have much higher house prices than other parts of the country. We don't really have another city on that scale in the UK. That's right. It is a lopsided wealth distribution, but also lopsided GDP generation that's responsible for that. And the prices in London just went crazy from about the mid 90s, so sort of 94, 95, up until about 2016, 2017. And since then, the the house price growth in London has been lower than the rest of the country. But there was that incredible run up over sort of 15 years. So if you look at the annual percentage change in house prices right now, this is for Q1 in 2022. For London, it's been the lowest growth of all regions in the UK, of the 11 regions in this nationwide survey. So it's been about 7%, whereas you know, places like Wales has been growing at about 15%, twice as fast. But that's just narrowing the gap very slightly, if you look at the actual average house prices. 
But it has been the case that valuation does matter. And I think that's what's driving the difference in growth rates right now. And if you look at rental yields in London, they're sub 3% for most buy-to-let investors, which is not really sustainable. People are just relying on capital appreciation. Yeah, when I do power hours, I often speak to people who've got buy-to-lets, and that's another source of income for them. And they always tell me that they're doing this outside London because the numbers just don't add up in London. No, I think if you got on the train in London in that mid-90s period, you'd have been leveraged rich over that 15-year period. Yeah. But it's too late now. Yeah, I think there will be a continued kind of equalisation across regions, especially now that people are working away from the office more. That's certainly a trend that we've been seeing. And if you look at the type of house which has actually increased in value most, it's been things like detached houses, much more than, say, semi-detached houses, which in the UK means houses stuck together, if you're American. Yeah. And flats or apartments are the lowest growth of all. Yeah. So my flat in London is terrible investment. So I think especially lockdown made it very clear that people like more space, particularly if you're going to spend time at home, you want a garden, because it does give you that kind of sense of well-being and it's a nice green space in which you can relax and unwind, which is invaluable, I think. I think it's a wonderful thing. And your dog can look at squirrels out of the window as he's doing right now. Indeed. Oh, he's calmed down now. He's, he's kind of done his squirrel patrol. So yeah, I think the run-up, the kind of long-term run-up was due to low interest rates. Also, you know, reasonable wage growth and a period of stability, low inflation. All of that kind of helped people build their house wealth, if you like, over this period of, you know, about 10 years when we've had ultra low interest rates. But now we're in a situation where many people are over-leveraged. You know, there's this honey trap of leverage, which makes you think that because interest rates have been almost zero for a decade, that'll continue to be the case. Well, guess what? It's not going to be the case from now on. So the risk-free rates are rising, which is obviously not going to be good for the housing market because, you know, the leverage will be more expensive and the debt servicing costs will be higher. So there will be some people who are entering a kind of distressed debt state, which is awful. You know, it's incredibly stressful as a person when a house that was affordable suddenly stops being affordable. Because in the UK, we have a completely different mortgage system to the US. Here we have a floating interest rate. We call it fixed. Fixed for like two years or something. Fixed for like two years. And then suddenly you get hit with this massive refinancing if interest rates are increasing as they are now. Whereas in the US, you can borrow fixed for 30 years. And, you know... <laughs> That's incredible. And why can't we do that here? I mean, there are a very few number of products I think are offering long-term fixes, but it's hardly heard of in the UK. We could. I think banks don't like the risk, but effectively the way the US market does it is to have a huge mortgage market built on top of it, where they package individual mortgages inside a mortgage-backed security. And it's implicitly underwritten by the US government? It is. And then it gets a, a stamp of approval from one of the agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and then it becomes AAA, magically. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is a huge market. You know, it's trillions in size. And if we did a similar thing in the UK, we do have mortgage-backed securities in the UK, RMBS, and they do package up these mortgages. But for some reason, we prefer floating because we don't like the interest rate risk. And also, I think people just want the lowest rate possible to entice them at the start. And obviously, if you're fixing for 30 years, it's going to be a much higher rate than if you're fixing for two years. But we could. You know, we could do exactly what the US has done. And we could have an agency which rubber stamps the AAA rate. Well, AA for the UK. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Generous. <laughs> well, 
you know, uh, you have to be realistic about these things. So double A, and then, you know, we could have our own MBS market and it could be fixed for 30 years. So come on, government, do it. That could be our our campaign. <laughs> I suppose if we're looking at it now and, you know, maybe the market looks bubbly, who knows? It's impossible to call house price crashes with any certainty. But if you were buying a house now, I think you've a bit nervous, maybe. Yeah, and we're in this situation ourselves. So we're looking, Laura and I, for a house. And literally the day that the house goes onto this website called Rightmove, it's fully booked in terms of viewings. And there's a multiple set of offers made on that day. And that's above the asking price. So it's very difficult. There's a lack of supply and huge demand. And, you know, I think those two are a big driver of house prices in the UK. That lack of supply is critical. I think you should let us know when you've bought a house. I'm pretty confident that'll be the top. <laughs> we're convinced <laughs> of this ourselves. You know, <laughs> you know and when, we, when we're doing the bidding for the house, you just think, oh, my God, this is the top of the market. But of course, it's not a problem if you don't have to move. You know, the problem becomes a problem when you've got a leverage purchase, the house prices come down and you're in negative equity and you've got a leverage loss if you sell the house. That's the risk. But if you're staying there for 20 years, I think the risks are pretty low. It's the same as equity, of course. If you buy at the top of the market and there's a crash, it's only a problem if you have to sell because eventually it recovers. Yeah, I mean, we always say it's impossible to time the market and I guess that applies to houses as well. Yeah, because generally house prices drift upwards just like equity prices for the same reason, which is that incomes generally drift upwards over the long term. It's just the rate at which that happens, which is the key driver. And for house prices, earnings just haven't been increasing that rapidly in the UK or in the US for that matter. But there are examples of countries where house prices haven't recovered. So, for example, Japan, the prices fell nearly 50%, I think, after the late 80s bubble. And they're still lower 30 years later. Yeah, so it can happen. And obviously, the size of the bubble matters as well. So the bigger the rally, the bigger the crash that eventually comes. So I think this is one of the reasons why macroprudential prudence on the part of the central bank is really important. You know, the central banks all now monitor leverage. And they look at the multiple of house price to income and they look at the leverage ratios for house purchases. They monitor all of that stuff. And if it looks like it's getting too hot, they will act and it actually impose a cap on, on how much banks can lend. And so what could cause a correction in house prices in the UK and elsewhere? Well, what we're seeing right now, I think, is, is actually, right, okay, actually going to trigger a problem. It's hard to call these crashes, but I think if household disposable income falls, which is exactly what we're seeing with huge increases in energy, you know, we're not talking about small increase here. As the price cap was increased for energy prices in the UK, we've seen our cost of gas, for example, go up by about 70%. Electricity has gone up by about 40% year on year. So that's money that we can't spend on other things or on mortgage payments. So clearly that's going to have a chilling effect. There's no question. And rates are rising. And interest rates are increasing because central banks are having to somehow stop the wage price spiral. You know, they want to effectively take money out of people's pockets. That's a choice on their part. To cool demand. Yeah, in order to cool demand for products and services. So that's the, that's the goal of central banks when they raise interest rates. And also the mortgage lenders, the banks, they are looking at disposable income, aren't they, when they make an offer of you know, how much they're willing to lend to you. And whether there's a recession, because of course in a recession, one of the awful consequences is that job security gets worse. You could well lose your job if there is a drop in GDP. 
And that's why it's not just an abstract number, it really matters. So you see it in all aspects of life. And if that happens, of course, the, the family may not be able to keep up its payments on its property. And in that case, you know, the bank would have to maybe repossess the house. So that all of these things are connected. And I think at the moment, we're seeing an almost perfect storm in terms of, in terms of house price affordability. I think what a lot of people say is that if prices did fall, then people would just stop putting their houses on the market. But then that kind of overlooks the fact that there are going to be forced sellers, whether due to deaths or debt or divorce, so the three Ds that people often talk about. Yeah, I think, I think that some people don't have a choice, as you say. So how's that situation going to be resolved? Well, a fall in prices. Yeah, it's never pretty though, is it? Because people who have bought near the peak, if there is a fall, they're the ones that get burned, right? Because, you know, they quickly go into negative equity. No, it happened to my cousin. You know, he bought in the 90s just before a big house price crash. But he was okay eventually, you know, but it was a very painful period for him. And I know many people who are in the same boat who, you know, bought at the peak and then just couldn't leave the property, even if they wanted to. And some people just choose to take a loss. So, you know, that is an incredibly painful experience. Plus, it's a leverage loss, which makes it even worse. So all of those things we've talked about, which could influence a correction, are effectively lowering demand. But I guess there's the other side of the equation, isn't there? We could boost supply, which could cool the property market through more house building, presumably. But of course, in the UK, certainly, we've got an oligopoly where effectively you've got seven companies that control supply. And if they increase supply, it reduces their profit per house. You've got to think to yourself, well, is this in their interest to increase supply? Oh, no, it's not. Should we not just build a load of council houses, replace the ones we sold in the 80s? It's funny, if you look at supply historically, after the Second World War, there was a huge amount of supply and it was done by councils. Whereas now, councils actually aren't allowed to build new supply. It's a rigged market. In some ways, I think it is. And I think that's a problem. You know, I think there should be more supply, but also supply of the kinds of houses which we need, because as people get older, you don't want to tackle stairs. I'm not quite at that stage yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you looking at retirement villages right now? <laughs> My pension craft stairlift, yeah. No, so I, I, I think that things like bungalows, which you know, makes sense for people who are getting to the point in their life where they're not so able to walk upstairs. There's just a huge undersupply of those. And of course, this is keeping older people in their homes because people often stay, you know, in their homes long after they should, you know, or would like to move into something like a bungalow, but there just isn't the kind of property they need. And also there's a sentimental attachment to homes, I often think. Sometimes I do just think the housing market is crazy as in the, the mismatch of resources and need is ridiculous. If you think about it, we all just sat in our house at night with offices empty and we all move to the offices in the day and all the houses are empty. We're all talking, taking up this like double space for no good reason. It was crazy. I always used to think this as I sat on the train for an hour on the way into work and then you know, came home for an hour and slept for about six hours and then headed back to the office. This is a ridiculous thing to do. It's a crazy system, but then no one wants to sleep in the office or their house or have them both to be the same. I kind of like having them the same, actually. I really like working from home and I don't miss the commute at all. Although for me, it was very productive because I used to write books on the train. But, you know, I don't think that's true. In many cases, a lot of people choose to sleep on the train. You know, a lot of us used to treat it like an extra hour's sleep. I think. <laughs> You'd be lucky if you get a seat when I was commuting in. 
I think you make a fair point, though, about the mismatch of demand and the changing social factors. So I read that one of the underreported things about why demand has increased for houses is that there's far more single adult households. So I think that's increased by 4% in just the last 10 years, the number of people living on their own, not just older people, younger people too. Yeah, people may not choose to have a kind of nuclear family or perhaps they just prefer being on their own. That's a choice that people make for a longer period of their life before getting married. Because demand is not driven necessarily by population, it's by number of households. The number of people per household, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And we have seen that demographic shift and it is an ongoing thing. So I think the supply has to somehow be rejigged in order to kind of meet the demand. What about all those NIMBYs, though? Steady. <laughs> this is the only time I've had a death threat on Twitter was because I had a nice picture of me walking in the woods with Teddy. And I said, I'd rather have this than another housing estate. Oh, my. Yeah, I know. And then... <laughs> it would give you a death threat bombing. I know. And You're then, so cuddly. I know. <laughs> I, I learned a new verb, though, which was to pull pot. And he said, we should pull pot you and people like you because you're a NIMBY or something like that. He was very angry. Anyway, he deleted it afterwards, but I was quite upset. <laughs> people feel so strongly about this. But it was quite funny in the chats afterwards. They were saying, oh, Amersham is only an hour from London. It's really easy commute and it's often the, the trains are almost empty. And I was thinking, you have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Having commuted that line for 20 years, I can tell you it's not empty. No one wants to be on the Metropolitan line. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember being on the train at like 5.30 in the morning because I had to travel in for the morning meeting at 6.30. And it was literally the milk train, you know. I mean, there was no one around at that point. But it was just, it was just an awful lifestyle, I've got to say. But I think another source of supply, which is kind of interesting, is people building their own houses. If the government allowed them to do that more easily, then that's an automatic way of ensuring that the supply meets the type of demand which is there. And that's far more common in parts of Europe than it is in the UK. Yeah, and it should be easier, you know, with kit houses. Effectively, you just need a plot of land which has planning permission, which has the services plumbed into it, and you can do it yourself. You know, that could be done quite reasonably. You know, my favourite episode of Grand Designs is the one where they build a hoof house. And literally, in the space of a week, you go from a concrete footing to a fully finished house. And it's just astonishing. The efficiency of these German workers is just amazing. <laughs> I like the idea of tiny houses. Have you seen these? They're basically like little, almost slightly bigger than a caravan. I love those. Just pack everyone into those. Oh, Laura and I love that programme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's such a beautifully crafted space, isn't it? So efficient. I mean, like I said before, I'm a minimalist. I don't have much stuff. I could live in a tiny house. Yeah, the thing actually, which is tricky, is these recordings. Because Laura, she has to be super quiet. <laughs> whenever I'm recording. And then Teddy gets really scared when I'm recording because I kind of talk loudly and he thinks it's my angry voice. So he runs and hides with Laura upstairs as far <laughs> away from the door as possible. Well, I send my wife and uh, child just out and should go for a walk. <laughs> I've got to record a podcast. Get out of the house. Put a coat on if it's raining. <laughs> That's heartless. That really is heartless. Just going back to government policy, there is a lot they can do. I mean, they've tried to call demand from buy-to-let in some ways. So they raised capital gains tax on buy-to-let investors and stamp duties. You know, there's a premium stamp duty you have to pay. They also abolished the indexation allowance, eliminated the wear and tear allowance, banned tenant fees being collected. So, you know, they've done, you know, quite a lot of stuff here, unusually, I would say, for a conservative government to lessen the appeal of buy-to-let. But then what we have seen is 
a lot more institutional investors coming in and building specifically to rent. So John Lewis planning to build a lot of houses to rent, Lloyds Bank doing the same thing. Is this where it's going? Is it going to be less of these kind of small scale buy to let investors and more big institutional investors coming in fulfilling that need? Well, whenever there's a demand, clearly there will be a a supply from people with capital. And who are they? Well, you know, it's huge institutional investors. So we could see these funding structures like real estate investment trusts, which are used to actually fund the creation of this housing. But they are primarily building to rent. And at least in the UK, most people don't want to rent, I think, at least not long term. And it's much more common in other parts of the world and in Europe. But we have weak rental protections here. So you can see why people want to buy. Yeah, because you don't want to be moved on if your landlord wants to refurbish the house or maybe just wants to increase the rent. So, yeah, I think, I think you know, rentals in the UK, like you say, it has limited protections. I can see why people prefer the psychological comfort of knowing they own the bricks and mortar and they'll own that forever. You know, while they can still make the payments, they still own it. It's interesting, though. There's a potentially quite controversial study by Blanche Flower and Oswald, which draws a link between high rates of home ownership and poor economic performance, which, you know, you wouldn't expect it necessarily to be that way, but it kind of does make sense when you think about it. They studied US states and where home ownership rates are higher and where they're lower. And joblessness, like unemployment, tends to be higher where there's high rates of home ownership. And they put it down to three things, lower mobility, longer home to work commute times, because it's harder to move, isn't it, when you own a house, and lower rates of business formation in those states. And they've seen similar trends in Europe. So it's kind of like maybe home ownership for an economy at large, if the rates get so high, it's a bit of a curse. I don't think it's a no brainer that economically you'll be better off if you buy a house. Because once you consider things like the amount of money you have to spend on maintenance, when you consider the debt servicing costs, suddenly it doesn't become such a good investment as many people make out. And if you actually look at the overall benefit of, say, buying a house versus investing the money, because this is a question I get asked a lot, you know, should I pay off my mortgage or should I put the money into investments? It's not an obvious answer. Depends on so many factors, doesn't it? Exactly. Like interest rates, equity growth, costs on your house. And the rate of house price growth, but also, you know, the maintenance costs, like you say, and the debt servicing costs. So so I think in many cases, it is better to rent economically. I think this is more the point that it's better for the economy at large. But yeah, even on an individual level, I know that when I first moved to London, I spent about 10 years renting and I moved jobs quite a bit then, which I couldn't do once we bought a house and was tied to one area or it would make my commutes a lot longer. So you think, especially when you're young, there's something to be said for renting. But this also has an economic impact, which is, you know, once you get an accumulation of people in a certain place around a certain industry, for example, the finance industry in London, then if they do try to move away from London, all these people suddenly can't move because, you know, they've already got the mortgage that they're paying on a house in London. So there's a lot of friction, a lot of resistance to this kind of mobility, which is actually probably good for the overall economy to kind of spread it out more and to have more mobile workers. And people should be able to move to where the jobs are. For example, in the United States, effectively, you've got all the people living on the East Coast, on the West Coast, and then you've got flyover land in the middle. So sorry to all of our listeners <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the Midwest, but, <laughs> but actually most of our listeners are on the East and West Coast, to be fair. People only listen to us if they're near water. Or financial centres, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but I think the point is that if you actually look at the US jobs market, 
there could be a big structural imbalance because, say, for example, lots of jobs crop up on the West Coast and unemployment is high on the East Coast. Well, you know, those people can't just up sticks and just scoot across to the West Coast because, you know, there isn't that kind of mobility. And if they've got a house, they can't move, as you say. I think it kind of hints at the other issue potentially with home ownership is that we talk often about having your investments diversified and what a boon that is. Buying one house on one street in one country and having that be your overwhelming majority of your net worth is about the least diversified thing you can imagine. And I know so many people who've been burned basically by, you know, flood risk and cladding issues we've got now in the UK where, you know, there is a a significant risk of such a specific asset. And also it's an illiquid asset. You know, if you try and sell a house, it can take up to a year or longer, depending on, you know, the troubles you have selling it. Yeah, and it's costly to sell it. Yeah, so the the actual trading cost is unbelievably high. You compare that with a fund where most stocks you can now trade for free and it takes, you know, 10 seconds. So I think liquidity is a really important thing because it's the kind of thing where you need it in a crisis and that's exactly when it disappears. In a housing price crash, what usually happens is, like you say, people hold on to their properties for longer and, you know, the market becomes less liquid and they're less likely to be buyers while house prices are falling because, of course, people will think, well, I'll just delay the purchase until the prices are lower. So I think that's the kind of period when the liquidity problem for housing really comes to the fore. And also the transaction costs are just phenomenal. Like you say, you know, in the UK, we pay stamp duty, you have to pay a solicitor, you have to pay moving costs. It is very expensive. I think most people probably don't think of their house as an investment and nor should they really. It is your home. But at the end of the day, it is one of the big sources of most people's net worth. Yeah. So if you look at the distribution of wealth in the UK, the vast majority of wealth, more than 50%, I think, in the UK, certainly in the US as well, is through housing. And many people say this is why things like QE and low interest rates vastly increased wealth inequality. Because if you have low interest rates, people who have the most money have the most housing wealth and their prices of their houses increase the most. Plus, we saw equity prices increase a lot. So that actually increased the wealth inequality, both in the US and the UK. It does feel like there is potentially a political problem building where you've got a younger generation that really is struggling to buy houses. So in the UK, youth home ownership, so I'm talking 25 to 34 year olds, that has fallen significantly. So that was 51% in 1989, and it's halved, just 25% in 2016 of you know that young cohort owning their own home. And of course, the solution to this, I don't think, is government schemes like help to buy. I think that's a problem. That just pushes up prices, right? It doesn't actually help people get homes. And all these awful tweets which I've seen about, you know, don't buy your cappuccino in the morning and you can afford to buy a house. I mean, I think that's just ridiculous. Avocados. Avocados are stopping everyone buying houses. <laughs> that's right. And it's so kind of patronising when, when you see tweets like that. Of course, it's not going to make any difference. But I think some of it's just trolling. Like the world is just dominated by trolling now. My favourite was the Greg's one where they said, if you don't go to Greg's every day, you could afford to create a deposit on a house. What, over the course of like 300 years? <laughs> this is it. Someone worked out that it would have to be like every day you'd have to go to Greg's and then it would take a few years. But the point was that you probably wouldn't survive. Because <laughs> you're eating Greg's every day. Yeah. 
Let me just point out for American listeners that Greg's is kind of, I have to be careful what I say here. They're sausage rolls. They're vegan sausage rolls are nice. Oh, no, you don't like them. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I wouldn't have them every day because obviously I wanted to buy a house, but, you know, <laughs> they're all right. Teddy loves them. I've got to say, there's a Greg's nearby and they often drop sausage rolls in the hedge. Teddy just loves to eat those. How can you look down on Greg's ramen when you live on KFC and McDonald's? Well, you know. It's, it's, there's a whole hierarchy of fast food, Michael. You just don't appreciate it. I think you're just sort of beholden to American culture. <laughs> I did live there for a long time, so I kind of do like American culture, I've got to say. Well, going back to houses, I think a lot of people think, well, the market just can't really ever have a massive correction because the government will have to prop it up. It's too important politically. But, you know, sometimes it can't be propped up. It is possible to have big house price crashes. In the 2007-8 bubble, the US prices fell by on average about a third. Obviously not all at once and not everywhere, but some markets fell hugely more than that. So parts of Florida and Las Vegas saw over 60% falls. Now that, that's massive. And also you've got to think governments at the moment are in a position where they had to kind of essentially generate huge amounts of borrowing for themselves in order to pay for all of the schemes to see us through the pandemic you know, for the healthcare, but also in the UK for the furlough schemes. And we saw that in many other countries too. So the debt to GDP ratios are now very high. And so government generosity in that kind of environment is unlikely to stretch to bailing out the housing market. So I think that's why this is a kind of special situation in which it is almost like a perfect storm. Rising interest rates, potentially we're going to get recessions, which make job security lower. And we're seeing the house price to income ratios at a very high level. So that's almost like an ideal sell-off scenario for, for housing. The thing is, a lot of people say, you know, people need places to live and supply is constrained, so prices can't fall. But then people can only afford so much. So it's going to be driven by affordability. If unemployment increases or, you know, wages fall in real terms, that's the kind of thing which could cause the party to end. Yep. And just like equity, valuation always matters. It always matters in the end. If you want to learn more about investment, then why not join our PensionCraft community? We've just completely revamped our website where we're going to run our membership. So just go to pensioncraft.com and look at the membership page. So each episode, we answer a dumb question of the week. And this originally started with me just coming up with dumb questions, which is easy for me to do. And we opened it up with the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. So send in your dumb questions. And people have been submitting some great ones. Um, this week's is from Brian, which is, why does infinite money printing not inevitably lead to high inflation? And he's really stretching the limits of what a dumb question is because he sent me an, an essay, which is a fantastic essay, but <laughs> we're just going to focus on that core question. What do you think, Roman? Okay, so I think this kind of comes down to the definition of money and how it's created, right, which is really interesting. I mean, I'm a nerd. I love this stuff, but it is really interesting. I think the misconception that many people have is that money's created by central banks. For example, there was this famous 60 Minutes interview with Ben Bernanke just after the financial crisis, where the interview was a little bit stunned, you could tell, because they said, where does the money come from to buy all these US treasuries in your QE program? And he said, well, we just created on the computer. You know, it's just a few keystrokes. Money printer go... Brrr. Yeah, exactly. It literally comes out of nowhere. And that was... You could tell the interview was stunned. They should never admit that, should they? <laughs> you could just tell there was a bit of a silence after he said it. 
But I think that was a realisation point for the interviewer, that the central bank can create unlimited amounts of money. But if you actually look at where money comes from, then you have to kind of describe what the money is. So there are various types of money. So firstly, there's the physical money, you know, the kind of notes and the coins you put in your pocket. Oh, yeah. Remember those? We used to have all that. Yeah, I hardly touch the stuff anymore, but uh, it does exist. And it's usually a small percentage of the overall amount of money in the system, if you like. So, for example, in the UK, it's currently 3% of the total amount of money out there. The vast majority of money is created in the form of deposits at banks. So in the UK, for example, that's 79% of the total amount of money. And then there's another type of money, which is money that's parked by retail banks. So that's like your bank where you have your checking account. That's parked with a central bank. And those are called reserves. And that makes up about a fifth of the existing amount of money. The thing to understand is that most money creation happens when a bank makes a loan. That's money that never existed before and which suddenly comes into existence when they make that loan to you or a company. Is this fractional reserve banking, which I hear about? It's related to that, yeah. But the key thing to understand is that that's where money comes from, most of it. So it's not a central bank printing money, it's commercial banks lending money that didn't exist before. Exactly. So that's where money comes from, the vast majority of it. I don't get it, though. How can they just lend money if they don't have the money to lend? Well, that's the beauty of banking. If you have creditworthiness, if you're a trusted lender, if you have a high credit rating, you can create money. I trust you, Roman. Can you just lend me some money and make some money? How does that like... I could at the moment, actually, because, you know, we've saved our deposit. But, but the, So what really limits the ability of banks to lend is something called their capital ratios. So one of the things which the central bank monitors and which it ensures doesn't get too high is the amount of leverage which banks have got. So if you've got, say, I don't know, 100 million in deposits, a very, very small bank, and you're making loans, how much should you be allowed to lend out based on your 100 million in deposits? Now, during the periods of excess in the past, those leverage ratios kind of went crazy and banks had very little loss-absorbing capital. So what happened was the value of the loans fell because a lot of them started defaulting. And once the loss in the loans on the asset side of the balance sheet starts to shrink, then once it shrinks by more than the equity amount on the liability side of the balance sheet, the bank is bankrupt. So they've kind of gone into negative equity, like you might with a house. Yeah. And, and, and the scary thing is that, you know, if they've got very volatile assets, it's much more likely that they're going to become bankrupt. So the key thing for a bank is how much loss-absorbing capital do they have on their balance sheet. It's called tier one capital. So that would include cash that they've generated via their business. It would also include things like equity, which they've raised by selling shares. But that tier one capital ratio is the key thing which is monitored by central banks. And if that goes up, that means that their tier one capital is safer, but it also means they've got less leverage, which they can create. So they can create less loans. And that's exactly what's been happening over the last decade. The central banks have been tightening up on the amount of leverage banks can have, and that means they can make less loans. I kind of get it now. So the central bank might be printing a lot of one kind of money. But if the multiplier at commercial banks is lower, they're lending out less money. It doesn't translate into so much money. I keep saying money, but it doesn't translate into so much money in the economy. I don't have words to differentiate these kind of things. Are there words 
I've heard M1, M2. Is this part of this? Well, this is M2 that we're talking about, which is probably a better measure. And, you know, that's been much more stable than, say, M1, which is, you know, very strict, narrow definition of money, which is mostly physical money. So I think I think the key thing is that, as you say, the leverage ratios effectively cap money creation. And banks have been actually reducing the amount of leverage they're allowed to take. It's been forced on them. They've had to kind of shore up their reserves in case there's going to be another crisis. So is that the primary answer to Brian's inflation question, is that those central banks have been printing enormous amounts of money? It hasn't, up until now, created high inflation because it's not making it into the real economy? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And if you actually look at the components of inflation... What's really characterised this inflation shock is that it's been exogenous. It's been things like energy prices going up 40% year on year. It's been supply chain issues, which aren't created by central bank controllable factors, if you like. So I don't think it's a money printing which has been the problem. It's been a combination of the pandemic and the kind of aftermath of the pandemic And then, of course, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which has created another supply shock. So if I go back to Brian's question, he smartly asked, so where's the catch for money printing by central banks then? If central banks can print money with impunity and it's not going to lead to high inflation, what's the constraint here? Is that what he said? (laughs) (laughs) I said he was testing the limits of the dumb question, Roman. No, this is a good question because this is effectively the core of MMT, which is modern monetary theory. So if you haven't read the book by Stephanie Kelton, you really should. It is so good. It's one of these books, you read it and afterwards you see the world in a different way. I think that's incredible that she's achieved that. But the idea is that governments can afford to shake the magic money tree. And the way to see a deficit from the, from the government's point of view is that it's actually a, a gain in our pockets. So their loss effectively is our gain. When they create money, it increases the ledger in the public finances. So governments can borrow an unlimited amount for developed markets. And ultimately, inflation is the measure of whether they've borrowed too much. And then they can control inflation with taxes. So there are various flavours of MMT, but I think a good place to start is to read her book. But the gist is governments can afford to borrow much more than they currently do. But presumably, central banks creating money in the extreme could cause inflation, regardless of supply issues. If you printed enough money to give, if let's take a ridiculous example, everyone a million pounds in the UK, that's going to cause massive inflation, right? There's no way around that. Yeah. Uh, And I think there's no question, if you have a huge amount of money chasing a, a limited supply of goods, then yeah, I think it's very clear that you're going to get inflation. So the question is, where's the line, right? Where's the limit? But there is a limit. I think the government would just have to feel its way. It's not clear what that limit is. You can look at debt to GDP ratio to see what's sustainable. And the key thing is for debt not to grow more quickly than the income of the country. That's the most important criterion for debt sustainability. But that's what would keep you from going into a kind of Zimbabwe-type scenario or a Weimar Republic-type scenario. I guess the example that constantly comes up is Japan, because they've created huge amounts of money through central bank QE over the last 20-odd years and done some you know, very unusual policies from a Western perspective with buying different kinds of assets. And they haven't seen inflation. They've been trying to get inflation, but it's stuck stubbornly around zero, even now, although people think it might go up later this year. So that would seem to disprove the kind of money printing necessarily leads to inflation argument that some people have. Yeah, their debt to GDP ratio is over 200% in Japan. They're one of the most leveraged, if you like, countries on that scale. 
And as you say, there hasn't been an inflation problem there. In fact, as you say, it's the opposite. So I think there are counterexamples to the kind of accepted wisdom that if you have lots of money creation, you're going to have hyperinflation. I remember in 2012 when there were lots of hedge funds who were betting on hyperinflation because at the time it was just the beginning of QE. We just saw the start of it. And they thought that inevitably that would lead to very high inflation. But of course it didn't. In fact, we had the exact opposite problem, which is that there wasn't enough inflation in the US. So the Fed was actually struggling to meet its 2% target. And that's why they changed their target to be an average inflation rate. It seems laughable now, of course, when we've got inflation (laughs) touching 8%. The thing is, money printing and inflation is super politically sensitive, and no one really wants to admit the truth about it. Yeah, there's this brilliant quote about inflation and money creation. And it's actually a recorded conversation between John Kennedy and one of the economists who's working at the the White House. It's really interesting because you can almost hear the penny drop in Kennedy's mind. He says, but is there any economic limit on the size of the debt in relation to national income? There isn't, is there? That's just a political answer, isn't it? Well, what's the limit? And then the economist replied, I said the only limit is really inflation. He grabbed at that. That's right, isn't it? The deficit can be any size. The debt can be any size, provided they don't cause inflation. Everything else is just talk. That's why he was killed, Roman. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so interesting. There are so many heated discussions in the threads on the videos I make, particularly the one about MMT. People feel so strongly about it because they think government finances are like household finances. You can't spend more than you earn, which of course is not true. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to check out the new PensionCraft website at pensioncraft.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great if you could tell a friend or share it on social media so more people can learn about investing. Many Happy Returns is a PensionCraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.